listening to the Keefe to the City podcast. All right, spring training has officially begun with pitchers and catchers reporting last week, players starting to report this week. Uh, games beginning next week, so baseball season is officially back. And joining me today to talk about uh, experiences in the majors with the Yankees uh, as a pitcher, both starter and reliever, is CJ Nikowski. Uh, you can see him on Fox Sports One, MLB Network Radio, CBS Sports Radio. He's sort of become the uh, jack of all trades when it comes to Major League Baseball media. CJ, how's it going today? It's going great. Good to talk to you, Neil. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I know, uh, you know, I, I was running through your things. You know, Fox Sports One, MLB Network, CBS Sports Radio. It seems like uh, you're all over the map these days. Yeah, you know, I think for me, knowing I was wanting to get into this business first of all when I was done playing, uh, but then realizing, you know, for me, I got to play for a while, and you know, baseball gave me a nice head start in life, but I never really could do anything, you know, kind of half effort. And I like being all the way in. And I like working for multiple places and, and working as much as I possibly can. As much as I enjoy the offseason, uh, I really enjoy working. And, and radio offers a really kind of unique perspective. And so I love doing the radio in addition to the TV stuff. Uh, with FN, uh, FS1, they kind of um, they enhance each other. Right? I, I can kind of use a lot what I get from radio, especially in the offseason, uh, to the TV stuff that I do during the season. And, and I like doing it all. I work with a lot of great people at all those places. It makes it a lot easier. And it's a fun job. And uh, so I really enjoy kind of doing it in multiple places. And I tell guys all the time. I get a lot of guys that ask me about getting into this business and, uh, you know, former players and stuff. It's okay. You weren't a star player, but you seem like you're working a lot. Hey, you know, how do you get in? And I said, you know, part of it is you got to be willing to work. you got to be willing to grind. And uh, you got to be try to be multi-platform. The more things you can do, the more opportunities you will have because this business is so messed up, man. An opportunity can go away so quickly that you want to make sure that you can do something else uh, if for some reason one job goes away. And I know outside of those uh, positions, you've also done some time uh, filling in for Susan Wallman on the Yankees radio broadcast with John Sterling and I. Being a huge John Sterling and Susan Wallman fan, I know for non-Yankees fans, and even some Yankees fans really, but mostly outsiders, they don't understand the Yankees fan infatuation with them, and or, or really John, I guess, in that sense, because of his odd way of calling games and that, you know, he just sort of tells you what he's seeing and really gives you the play-by-play as sort of a replay afterwards. And for all, you know, the missed calls or the botched plays, he, he's still John Sterling. He's still a, a staple of the Yankees and certainly the Yankees broadcast team. So, uh, you know, what are those experiences like when you get to sit down next to him for some games and, you know, get to sit right up close with all this theatrics and entertainment? Yeah, it was so much fun for me to be able to sit in and, first of all, even have the opportunity to fill in for Susan. And she was really helpful as far as just kind of pointing me in the right direction as I came in the night before the first game that I called in 2013 and just kind of showed me around, told me what to expect and what my duties would be. You know, it was the first big league game I ever called. I would called some college games for CBS Sports Network earlier that year, but I'd never called a Major League Baseball game. So the very first Major League Baseball game that I get an opportunity to sit in the booth and be an analyst is with John Sterling as my play-by-play guy, which is, you know, it was just incredible. And I grew up in the area, grew up a New York Yankee fan, I grew up falling asleep and going to bed listening to Bill White and Phil Rizzuto, and so I've always loved Yankee radio. It's just, it's always been something that's been a part of my life ever since I was a little kid. And so it was just a huge honor. And then to sit there with John, uh, who was really gracious and really helpful uh, to me and really encouraging uh, in the process. It was it was just so cool. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It was just so fun to be able to sit in that chair to call a Yankee game uh, with him 
Uh, it's exciting. And, you know, as far as kind of even what you're mentioning, I think that it's one of the things that's kind of getting lost in radio. I think that you, know, you get local personalities that do just a really good job that local fans fall in love with. Those guys should never be criticized outside of their market. I think it's kind of nonsense. Like, they don't know. If you're not in New York and you're not a Yankee fan, you're not listening to Yankee radio regularly, I don't think their opinions matter that much, to be honest with you. I get a little frustrated sometimes with the criticism that comes out of market. John and Susan do a great job. Uh, people that listen to them love listening to them, and there's a good reason why. I mean, it's just there's a comfort feeling, I think, when you're listening to a Yankee game uh, with two voices that you've heard for so long. I agree, and I think uh, you, you'd learn to live with them, and, and they sort of become yours, and they're part of your life, especially when you're either driving or you don't have access to watch the, a certain game on TV. And it's one of those things where people like to complain about anything, and I think once they retire and once they're no longer the broadcasters, it's one of those things where the grass is always greener and people will miss what they had with John and Susan. 100%. And, you know, and you're not going to want to be the guy that follows them either, right? Like following their Jeter short or, or any other position, an area that you've been comfortable. It's not fun to have to follow them because people will criticize because that's what they'd like to do these days and there's more opportunity to do that with social media and everybody's a media critic. Uh, but all that matters is the voices that are listening and the people that are making hirings. Those are the only opinions uh, that actually matter. And I, and I do think whenever that day comes, and hopefully it's not for a long time, but whenever that day comes, uh, I think people will absolutely miss listening to John Sterling and Susan Walden on the radio. When you filled in for Susan, did you do the uh, you know stepping up to the plate and now stepping up to the microphone as the voice of the New York Yankees? Uh, I did not do that. I mean, she gave, I had to do like the pre and post game interviews, which, you know, to be honest with you, was a little nerve wracking for me. It's weird, yeah. you know, you play all those years and you got to go back in the clubhouse and, uh, and interview players. And, you know, I was, you know, starting to get pretty far removed from the game. So a lot of guys that I don't know, it was an, kind of an awkward feeling. I don't like being in the clubhouse or, or really bothering people. But no, I didn't have to do that, but I had to do the other little duties uh, of the pre and post game interviews. And interview skills are tough. I think that's, for me, probably the one area. Uh, that I feel like I need to work on the most. I and mean, you always have to be improving in what you're doing, but interview skills are difficult, so I had an opportunity to practice that. But, man, it was, it was, uh, it was so fun. I look, I look back on that really fondly. Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up because I was going to ask you about being a former player and now having to be in that role where you have a microphone in someone's face and you're asking a question that might be unsettling, and obviously you were in that position at one time. So, it, it, you know, you're one of the few people that sort of gets the unique dynamic of being on both ends of it. Uh, so as a former player and now you're asking players whether, you know, they played with you or whether they know you or not, that has to be a little nerve-wracking because you, you know what it's like to be in their shoes. Yeah, I do. And I think the bigger thing for me, and I probably lean heavy on this side compared to other guys, is that I just don't want to bother guys. I don't want to get in their way. I understand the preparation. I understand what it's like to be frustrated by media that just kind of loiters in the clubhouse uh, without a real purpose, which makes it kind of hard for you to relax and let down because, you know, everybody has their phone out. Everyone is either snapping pictures or tweeting anything that's going on. We see the coverage now, and it's just, you know, minutia. There's so many little things that aren't important, and I think for players it's a, it's a lot tougher place to be in now than it ever has been, and so I just don't like being there if I don't have to be. It's not that I don't want to be. It's, you know, being in the major league clubhouse is a cool place to be, but I feel like it's not my place. I try to respect uh, those guys' privacy in their space, at their office. If I have something I have to do, manager's meeting, whatever it is, I get in and I get out. If there's a player that I'd love to ask a question to, uh, maybe I'll track a guy down, but even when I'm doing games nationally for Fox, I, just, I don't even bother for the most part. I just do my research uh, like I said, talk to the manager, maybe a couple of coaches. And I know more coaches now than I do players. A lot of former teammates and friends are coaching around the league. May go say hello to them, uh, get some feedback, maybe get some information that's going to help with the broadcast. But, but I get out, man. I just don't like bothering guys. Uh, I respect their time, and especially nowadays, there's just so many outlets uh, that there's a lot of demands on their time. 
Yeah, and I always thought it was weird, not just in baseball in the clubhouse, but whether it's their hockey locker room or basketball or football, it was always sort of weird that right after a game, you know, minutes after a, a big win or a tough loss, either way, you've got media members at your locker, at your stall asking you questions. And I always thought it made more sense to maybe give the players their time. And then at some point, you know, they're all made available in a giant room, like sort of a media day thing. But uh, it's just weird, I think, to have, you know, obviously you've lived through it, but to be changing or to be getting ready to go about your night or your rest of your day and and you have someone standing there with a recorder. It's just, it always made me feel weird that that's how, that's how the media deals with the players. Yeah, I, I would be all for kind of the way that you described it. And even though it's part of my job now and getting that information is important, uh, post-game is tough. In baseball, I think there's a 10-minute, you know, kind of cool-off period. At least that's what it used to be, 15. I think they knocked it down to 10. I don't know if there's a, a set standard for all teams, but I guess, you know, it was one of those things that maybe each team would set their own uh, parameters on, but I, I just I would be okay with the way you describe it. You know, go ahead and do your stuff in the clubhouse. The media does not need to be in there, and you can make requests for players that you may want to talk to, and you give them a window and say, okay, listen, you got you know eight minutes with the press, you know whatever it's going to be, twenty minutes after the game. I understand those guys have jobs to do, and they have stories to get filed, and they're under deadlines, and there's a lot of pressure to do that. But at the same time, I just for me, you know, media in the locker room is probably something that's not necessary. It's even for the rest of the guys, right? You're sitting there and you know, you have your locker next to Matt Harvey and he just pitched and you know there's going to be a scrum at his locker afterwards. It's just it's just kind of a pain. Everyone just sits there and stares at his locker and waits till he's ready. So weird. Uh, it, it would be a lot better if they could just, you know, set a time. It's okay, 15 minutes after the start, you know, Matt Harvey will be available. you got eight minutes that he'll be in this pressure, you know, for exactly those eight minutes. The manager, of course, has to do it every night. Uh, him doing it immediately after the game is probably ideal. Uh, so those guys can get their quotes that they need or if they need to address any situations that happen with injuries or whatever it might be, uh, get all that. That has to happen. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say you, have, you can request a couple of guys and, and that's it and be done with it and let these guys uh, do their stuff, let them unwind, uh, let them be able to kind of, you know, uh, just relax a little bit after the game and get out of there when they want to. Well, now that spring training's underway, pitchers and catchers haven't reported, and you being at one time a starter and a reliever, you, you had to report as two different things in your career. So, you know, this time, and, and we're certainly getting towards the point now, we're about a weekend where people will start to say, yeah, two, spring training is too long, and when does the regular season begin? And it's a, you always hear the theme that it's, you know, spring training is, uh, is more important for pitchers. So for you, I mean, what is, your, what is a pitcher's routine, you know, from the moment you get there through the six weeks until opening day? Yeah, it gets pretty long. I mean, for me, you always got to come into shape regardless. And things have changed, you know, even, you know, over the last 10 years or so. Guys are training so hard. And I think even during my career, you know, starting in the early 90s, that was the case. Guys came into camp ready to go, but I think it's even more so now. Uh, you know, you're doing your work. You've been doing it for a couple of months already. Uh, I think that's part of it. You start, a lot of guys will start in November, depending on when your season ended. Uh, some guys maybe December. Uh, but you're picking up a baseball at some point, you're in the weight room, you're throwing, you're long tossing at home, whatever it may be, uh, but you're coming in kind of ready to go. The, difference, the bigger difference, not so much if you're a reliever or a starter, the bigger difference is whether or not you know you have a spot on the team or you have to earn a spot on the team, right? For those fringe guys, maybe you know the guys that are going to be in the fifth starter competition, or there's a couple of bullpen roles that are going to be battled out in spring training. Those guys... Uh, the first day that you step on the mound, that first bullpen that you throw is pretty important, especially if you're going to a new team or you have a new coaching staff or any new coaches for that matter, because you got to make that first impression. And so that one is really important. Ultimately, over the six weeks, um, those situations will play themselves out. But you want to be able to make that really good, strong first impression, and so you got to be ready to go uh, from day one. If you're a guy who has your spot on the team locked up, 
That's not to say that you're going to coast in, but uh, you know what you have to get ready for. You already have a spot on the opening day roster. You know where you are in the rotation. You know where you are in the bullpen. And you just got to make sure that come opening day, uh, you're ready to go. Yeah, I always felt like the guys who hadn't made, the star players who were under big money or big contracts who could come, you know, get their work in or when the games start, play a couple innings and they leave or they go golfing or they go to the beach or they go to a nice, get a nice meal. But, you know, the majority of the players aren't those guys. The majority of the players are the guys working and fighting and, and trying to earn a spot on the team. And, and like you said, it, it's a completely different situation. So, I mean, is it really, you know, just nerve wracking from the moment you show up until you find out whether you're, you made the team or you're getting released or you're going to minor league camp? It's not, I don't know if it's nerve-wracking. I mean, there's some anxiety there. Uh, you know, these guys have been around the professionals. They're used to being criticized um, publicly. It's kind of, you know, it just comes as a lifestyle, really, even going back to your amateur years. But uh, there is a little bit of anxiety, I guess. Um, I, I don't think guys are nervous. They overcome that at this point in their careers. But as spring training goes along, and let's just say you're a French guy as far as making the team goes, and, you know, you start to see some cuts that are being made. And you know what day is cut day. It becomes pretty obvious. Uh, a lot of times based on when players get paid in spring training. Cause you, get, you don't get paid the regular salary in spring training, uh, but you do get paid kind of meal money and things to cover your spring training expenses, and it's usually a week at a time. And so you know Tuesday is going to be payday, so that means uh, there's going to be some cuts on Tuesday morning uh, because they're not going to pay guys that are getting ready to leave camp. And so that's something that brings a little bit of anxiety when that day comes around. And as camp starts to windle down to the end and there's you know lockers start to get emptied, you start paying closer attention to those days, and some teams will give that meal money for three days, you know, and also, okay, another cut day's coming up in three days, and, you know, I'm pitching in between now and then, so i got to make sure I have a good game and try to stay in this camp and, and keep myself alive. There's definitely some anxiety that comes along with that because there's a big difference in where you start the season. You know, for a lot of guys, making that opening day roster guarantees a contract for them for the year. Uh, that's a big deal, especially when you look at the differences between big league and minor league salaries. Uh, for fringe guys who haven't made uh, significant money yet in the game, uh, it can be uh, it can be a trying time. I know from uh, you know from Twitter and, and from other blogs and sites, there's a lot of people putting up videos or vines of, of Girardi and Larry Rothschild watching bullpen sessions, and they're just standing behind the guy, you know, chatting while he throws. And uh, I don't know what they're talking about or what they're seeing, but it always puzzled me. I mean, what is a, a manager or pitching coach looking for in a bullpen session in spring training when there's no hitter, there's no real result, you're just watching a guy throw, and there's no radar gun there? So I, I just it always, it always wondered to me, what are they looking for exactly? Well, you get a real good feel for what a guy's stuff is. You know, let's just say you're, you know, use a, use a veteran as an example. Say C.C. Sabathia is strong at this point, right? They're kind of curious, you know, where is he? What kind of run is he getting on his fastball? How's the life uh, on his pitches look? How does the command look? How does his delivery look? Those are conversations or little uh, notes that they're maybe taking mentally that they'll discuss later, you know, out of earshot of him. You know, that's, that's kind of one example and saying, okay, looks a little stronger than last year. It looks a little slower. The fastball doesn't look alive, whatever, whatever it might be. And then you have, you know, guys that, again, like the borderline guys, you know, you sit there saying, okay, we, we haven't seen much of him. We saw him last year in camp, but he spent the whole year in double A and triple A, uh, you know, watching this stuff and say, well, the ladder's got some really good bite on it. I could see where you know, it'd be a really effective pitch, righty on righty. Um, Changeup has some good faith. You get a really good feel. Because remember, when you're sitting in the dugout, or even if you're watching the game on TV, you just don't get a really good look at pitches, right? Camera angles are a little bit distorted because they're off-center and they never completely tell the picture. And then, of course, you're sitting in the dugout. It's a much tougher read to get uh, as far as what a pitch actually looks like. So you get that opportunity to stand behind a pitcher while he's throwing his bullpen. Uh, you can really dig in on his stuff 
and you know, start to have some opinions about it and how it may work or how it might not work or how it you know could best be used. Um, but they know these guys coming in. The conversations have started well before uh, anybody has taken the mound. But you know, they may have heard something from a scout. You know, say a new player comes in and say, "Yeah, we know we've heard his two seamers have great sync, but now we get to see it firsthand, and they can start to talk about uh, the different things that they're seeing from uh, all their guys." Well, as a starter and reliever, I know that the the old adage is that most relievers are, are guys who failed as starters. And now you look at across baseball, and it's sort of changing in the sense that you know guys are drafted as relievers. They're strictly relievers in college or closers. Um, Jacob Lindgren comes to mind on the Yankees. And you look at the way baseball is going now. And you know, had it gone that way maybe twenty years ago when your career was starting out, do you think you would have you know possibly just gone in as a reliever or or strictly been a reliever in college, and, and it would have changed where you were drafted or when you were drafted? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly wasn't going to get drafted any higher than I did. If anything, if you're a reliever, you're going to drop a little bit. Um, I think, you know, you always want to develop or take the starter development as long as you possibly can. So for me as an amateur, you know, I'm throwing in the low 90s and I have a good curveball uh, and I'm left-handed, but I'm not overpowering guys. I was touching 94 in college, but probably sitting around 91 or 92. Um, you're absolutely going to see if you can make that player a starter, right? You can look at his stuff and, like, for me, as an example, my changeup was pretty average in, in, in high school and college and say, okay, we can get him with some professional coaching and make him a, you know, get him a good changeup. And so now with changeup, curveball, fastball with, with some good run on it, that's the guy that should probably start. And there's much more value in guys starting. Uh, and so you go down that path. I mean, you can say that about a lot of guys, even cross town. You look at, you know, Jerry's Familia. Like, he came up as a, through the system as a starter. Once they realize that that wasn't going to work, you put them in the bullpen and you identify some stuff that you see and you think, okay, this guy has a chance to be an impact reliever, and he's become exactly that. Uh, but you always go down the path. Wade Davis is another guy, right? I mean, it's a starter. Trevor Rosenthal is a starter. And some guys still thinking they have a chance to start, but they settle into these dominating roles as relievers. Uh, it's kind of the path for pretty much everybody. Everybody is, is, a, is a failed starter. But for me, if I could go back and do it all over again, I wouldn't have changed the development of all of it. If anything... I think, uh, you know, and this is a little bit hard to admit at times, but I probably would have been better off staying in the minor leagues a little bit longer and continuing uh, to develop myself as a starter. So I got up to the big leagues very quickly, only made three starts in AAA before I got called up. Um, I probably could have used a little bit more time, had a little bit more success, and would have prepared me uh, for pitching at the major league level as a starter first. You see guys who dominate in AAA and, you know, they get called up or like you said, you know, after three starts you get called up right away. What's the biggest difference from going right from AAA to, to the majors? And, you know, you see these guys who have two or, or sub two ERAs and then they come up and their first start is five runs and four innings. And what, what Aside from nerves and being on the big league stage for the first time, what's the biggest difference? Yeah, I mean, the anxiety is a big one for a lot of guys. It's the realization of a lifelong dream, right? The first time you step on that mound in the big leagues or step in the box, you're like, holy crap, I made it. You know, this is what I've been dreaming about my entire life, and, uh, and now I've made it. So there's a lot of emotion that comes with that. But you know, just even over, you know, say, the first couple of months of a player's career, I think the biggest thing you'll notice as a pitcher, and this kind of happens as, as you go up in each level, uh, from the minor leagues as you climb up, is that guys get better at fouling off your really good pitches, right? There's certain levels. Double-A, guys are free swingers generally. Uh, a lot of those hitters, if you have big look potential, you should be able to dominate with regularity. But then all of a sudden you get to that point where you're throwing your, your really good cutter uh, in on the hands. Let's just say for me as a lefty, I'm throwing in the hands of a righty, and I usually get you know a little ground ball to third base. Well, all of a sudden now that guy's fouling that pitch off, or I think I have him set up for a really good breaking ball, and it's got you know it's got a great spin, but it's going to finish below the zone. So I want to try to strike him out, and he's taking that pitch, and he's not chasing pitches, 
out of the zone. And so you get hitters that are much more selective, uh, that are really good at spoiling your best pitches. Uh, and that can be a grind because you're used to throwing that pitch and finishing a batter off. You're used to throwing that fastball and blowing a guy away. Well, now he's fouling it off a little bit or, you know, he's taking it because it's a borderline pitch. Uh, those things can, uh, can wear you down a little bit uh, mentally, and then your mistakes that you make are going to get a hit a lot harder uh, than they ever have, and they're going to get hit a little bit more regularly than they ever have. So a lot of different things go into it, a lot of different new kind of feelings that you're experiencing and watching these hitters do some things. Uh, that you've never seen before on a much more consistent basis. I know from a previous interview you did that uh, you had mentioned how 2004 pitching alongside John Smoltz and then Mariano Rivera, how they helped to sort of change your mindset and shape the way you viewed the game or how you viewed your own performances. You know, it, what, what, what was it exactly that, you know, they brought up that, that changed the way you looked at yourself after tough outings or after a loss? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty uh, awesome to be able to spend some time with both of those guys. Uh, within the same year. I mean, I think, you know, on the Smoltz angle, and it's a guy that I continue uh, to have a relationship with even now. Uh, we live in the same area. Kids go to school together. We both do work for Fox. Uh, he is uh, he is the ultimate competitor. I mean, this guy just absolutely loves to compete. And so that part of it with me, I think, being around him and seeing a guy, I was already 10 years into my career when I played with him, um, but just to see a guy never want to lose at anything, just be absolutely tenacious in competition, whether that meant baseball, golf, shooting darts, whatever it was, um, just, you know, an unbelievable competitor. And I continue to work out with him in the off seasons and kind of see that as we play, uh, pick up basketball games. And, you know, sometimes you're going through your career and I got to a point where I was just trying to keep my head above water. I was just trying to survive. And, uh, you can't, you can't go through your career that way. It's just, you're not going to be successful. You always have to be trying to win. You always have to try to be, uh, the best, and so spending some time uh, with him, picking up on that a little bit more, seeing it firsthand uh, was pretty incredible. To spend those couple of months with Mariano in the bullpen, to watch him every day, how he goes about his routine, and to watch how he cares about his teammates. I mean, I wasn't there very long. I had a really rough game in Baltimore one night, and uh, he sat me down. And we had a you know pretty I don't want to say a long conversation. But we had a pretty in depth conversation just as far as how we handle uh, adversity, how we handle. Uh, losses and work, what he saw for me, what he thought I could be doing better, uh, some mental things that he thought were showing up on the outside that I probably need to needed to eliminate if I wanted to to stay consistent. I was at a big you know kind of crossroads in my career uh, at that point. It was going to go one way or the other, and uh, he was really really helpful at the time. And I also know from uh, a different interview, you talked about how you sort of made your spot on the Yankees by calling them and sort of put yourself on the roster, which is a pretty cool story. Yeah, so actually it was when I was with Atlanta. So I was with, I was with the Braves. I got released. And I was sitting in my apartment, and I was looking, you know, looking around. I've always been a very proactive player. Some guys will just turn everything over to their agents. I just never was completely comfortable with that. You have a lot of clients. You never know when a guy's going to get lazy or miss something or whatever it might be. And so I'm just looking around. I looked at the Yankee situation, and they were having some issues with left-handed relievers at the big league level. Um, being that I got released from the Braves and where I was, I knew I was going to get paid my contract the rest of the year. And so I called the Yankees directly, and I just said, you know, hey, I just got released from the Braves. Um, you know, I see what's going on there. You know, what's the interest level? You know, is there any chance uh, that you'd be willing to put me in uh, even Columbus at the time where the AAA team was just for a little while with an out and let, you know, see if anything happens. And uh, Damon Oppenheimer uh, called me back and we talked it out a little bit and, and ended up kind of getting a deal done uh, myself. And so I went to Columbus for a couple of weeks. You know, I had an agent at the time. Um, I kind of took care of that myself and uh, went to Columbus and spent a couple of weeks there and pitched really well. Some of the best that I had thrown in my career. 
and uh, and within a couple of weeks or before I had an out clause, I ended up getting a uh, ended up getting a call from uh, from Bucky Den, who was my manager at the time, and said, "Hey, man, we've got to get you up to New York today." And uh, even then, like I said, I was ten years into my career. I guess I was thirty. Like 30 years old, 31 years old, whatever it was. Um, I was excited, man. It was still a phone call that I could still hear clear as day in my ear, and uh, it was 12 years ago. So it was, uh, it was really cool. It was a really cool moment for me and something that I always wanted to do. But yeah, you got to be proactive, I believe in that, and paying attention. And so I just picked up the phone and made a call myself. Well, you've been part of trades. Uh, you've joined teams mid-season uh, with the Yankees. You sort of put yourself on uh, the team you grew up rooting for. And you look at, you know, some of these teams and, and some of the ways you've got traded. Uh, you know, when the player gets traded mid-season, I mean, what happens to their mindset, you know, trying to prove themselves in the clubhouse? If you're around guys you don't know, do you sort of cling to the guys that might have gotten traded along with you? What happens when a player has to move teams in the middle of the year? Yeah, it's never fun. You know, I mean, unless it's something you're really looking forward to. And I've just gotten so used to moving and that was kind of what my career was. You know, over the 19 years that I played, there wasn't a ton of stability. I mean, I knew I was in Detroit. I knew I was going to be there for about three years in a row. But other than that, um, we just never knew what was going to happen in midseason releases or trades. I and mean, I spent my first full year in baseball. I played in four different cities, double-A, uh, triple-A in the big leagues of Cincinnati. got traded at the deadline that year, went to Detroit. So right, you know, right away, my first year, uh, you know, first full year, where a lot of guys are probably playing A-ball. Maybe they go from high-A to low-A. Uh, whatever it may be, I, I played in four different cities, two of them in the big leagues, and, and right away just kind of got used to the carousel. And it really never ended. It just kind of continued that way through the rest of my career. Um, it's You know, it's you get excited about the adventures a lot of times, but as you get a little bit older, it can be a little bit tougher, especially when you have children. I started playing overseas in Japan and Korea, and it got a little, uh, it got a little daunting at times, but ultimately I don't think we'd go back and, and change anything. It was a lot of fun. There were a lot of great experiences along the way. I know from the SB Nation piece you wrote about Mariano a couple years back before he retired, you talked about all the, the things you've been on the other side of, uh, Randy Johnson's perfect game, Roger Clemens' 20 strikeouts, Kerry Woods' uh, stri- 20 strikeouts, and uh, your one year on the Yankees happens to be you know the worst year in the team's history with the collapse against the Red Sox and the ALCS, and I was a uh, freshman in college that fall up in Boston, and it was a miserable time, so I can only imagine what it was like to to you know, be part of that team after growing up a Yankees fan and suffer in New York. Here you are finally realizing your dream with team you grew up rooting for, and then that disaster happened. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. I mean, I was left off the playoff roster, um, so I wasn't there at the time. But I knew this. You know, I was like, you know, they got a good chance to win, and I'll get a ring no matter what. And even if I don't deserve <laughs> it, uh, it'd be great to have. And so thinking you're up three zero, and this is just going to be another you know another Yankee year where we've seen them just dominate the Red Sox year in and year out knock them out and then kind of cruise to a World Series victory. It just seemed like everything was lining up that way, um, but it didn't happen. It didn't work out that way at all, and it's uh, unfortunate to see it and definitely not uh, what I was hoping for. <laughs> well, uh, throughout your career was sort of the rise of sabermetrics as well, and I, you know, I always wonder, do pitchers you know, in the majors or even you know, going up to the minor league ranks before they get there, at this stage of, their, you know, at this stage of where sabermetrics is, do they pay attention to them, or is there any way they can use them to their advantage? I think so. I think there is absolutely. I mean, I kind of started thinking about some of that stuff during my career a little bit, um, you know, what things really mattered, what should I be focusing on. I think it's, you know, for a lot of guys, at the end of the day, you want to get guys out, right? That's ultimately the goal. But at the same time, for some guys, if you can find a couple of numbers 
um, that work for you or staff that works for you that can help you kind of set a goal, I don't think that's a bad idea either. You know, whatever it may be. And finding your strengths, too, I think that's another thing is you can look into some numbers and say, you know, this is kind of who I've been over a couple of years of my career. Let me embrace that strength and make it really good. As an example, if you have a guy you know, who's a good ground ball pitcher but maybe doesn't get uh, a lot of strikeouts, you know, you're not going to change that dramatically. You're not going to go from striking out five guys per nine innings to striking out 11. And so, but if you're a really good ground ball pitcher, teams are going to recognize that, and it could be a place for you uh, in the major leagues, you know, as a as a middle inning, late inning reliever uh, to get big out. So keeping track of things like your ground ball rate, your strikeout rate. I think the walk rate is a really good one. I mean, I always looked at the walks, and it was always an issue for me. I always looked at the bulk number of walks that I had, right? And it was always this kind of goal to try to get to a two-to-one ratio, but it's kind of useless. It doesn't mean anything. You know, the walks per nine makes a lot more sense as far as how often you're walking guys. Uh, so I kind of like that. It's not, you know, it's not, I don't know if I'd call it an advanced metric, but it's just a, a different way to kind of look at it. Uh, some of the stuff will make your mind just go numb. You know, some of it is, <laughs> is just overkill, in my opinion. But there are some things I think that you can find that are useful uh, that players can use, and some just do not. I mean, some guys don't operate well when you start overloading them with data or giving them a ton to, a ton to think about, and they're better off just not even going down that path and just playing the game and let their talent shine. Well, you played from 95 to 05, eight different major league teams as a left-hander, and uh, I always felt like, you know, one day if I had a kid, I would tie their right arm behind their back until they, you know, finally grasped the concept of throwing lefty because it seems like uh, if you're a lefty, you can you can pitch forever, or at least it feels like forever. There's certainly more opportunity, right? There's just not nearly as many left-handers, and if you can pitch, if you have something you know, good in your arsenal, uh, as a left-handed pitcher, you're going to get opportunity. For me, you know, getting drafted high, having a good fastball, having a good breaking ball, uh, all those things contributed to me you know, getting a ton of opportunities and, and playing for all these different places. And like I said, the overseas stuff on top of it as well. Um, definitely there are huge advantages uh, to being left-handed if you have something that you can get big league hitters out with. And I know that you used to have uh, your own blog, then you had Just a Bit Outside, you've done the SB Nation stuff, and now the Just a Bit Outside is no longer. Is there a, uh, a spot in the future, the near future for this season you're going to be writing? Uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm still at Fox Sports, so I'll, anything I write this year, I won't have to write as, as, as frequently as I was um, in the past, but anything that I write during the year, things come up, it'll all be at uh, foxsports.com, our main MLB page, where you know that's where Ken Rosendahl and John Paul Morosi uh, that's where all their stuff is. So it just slide over now. The microsite is gone, unfortunately. Uh, but now it'll just be uh, everything will be at foxsports.com. All right, CJ, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk uh, you know, about your experiences, uh, what to see in spring training and your time with the Yankees. And uh, look forward to seeing you this season on all your different uh, avenues. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was good talking with you, man.